I want to take you to, I'm going to take you to two texts this morning. Uh, Exodus chapter 16, you can go there first, and then we're going to turn to Mark chapter 8. And uh, I want to just read a portion of Exodus chapter 16, and then make our New Testament application. We'll check it out. It's just a fun story. Are you there? Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness, that you truly are a good God. And Lord, we, we love you this morning. We all have uh, areas, areas of, of brokenness, sorrow, suffering in our lives. But Father, this morning as we uh, come to your word, I pray that we would be reminded that you are a good God. That Lord, although we don't understand all things, you do. And Lord, when we love you, you promise you work things out. And Father, we just pray that today you'd birth in us faith. This faith to trust you, to rest in your ability to provide, Lord, to, to know that when we seek first your kingdom, you, work, you, you look after everything. And uh, God, we, we just, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for that, which you want to speak to us. Even before we hear it, Lord, we pray that you just uh, open up our hearts, open up our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to just read to you parts of uh, Exodus chapter 16. We'll kind of g- give it a bit of a skim here, an overview. It says this in verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel got grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they... When they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, At evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 9, jump up there. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation, to the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, There was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall eat. Each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it, it, was an, it, 
When they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Verse 21 says, Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. And then verse 31, Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And then verse 35 says, The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to habitate in the land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Let's turn to Mark chapter 8 this morning. You there? All right, just verses 1 through 3. It says this, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. This is the account, the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. You guys are familiar with it. You know the story. There's another account in the Gospels. In fact, it's actually told just two chapters earlier in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Now, on the first occasion when he fed the 5,000, it was actually a Hebrew crowd. You read that, you find out that it's a Jewish crowd. But now, uh, just earlier in this text, in chapter 7, we discover that Jesus hopped in the boat. He crossed the Sea of Galilee, and he's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was in an area called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was 10 cities on the eastern shore, and it was a Gentile area. The Jews did not live over there. It was all uh, Gentile cities. And so, it's just kind of interesting that now we have, we've got, we got a Hebrew Jewish people, Israelites being fed in the first feeding of 5,000. And now when the 4,000 gather, this is, a, this is a Gentile crowd, a fully Gentile crowd, and they've gathered around Jesus to hear his teaching. Now, it was in the region of the Decapolis that not long before we read in the gospel, something amazing happened. You remember the story of the man who was possessed by a legion of demons? That Jesus had come into the Decapolis and he was met by this man who was out of his mind, naked, living amongst the tombs, raving and demon possessed. And Jesus gave the demons, as he set the man free, the demons asked for permission to go into a herd of swine. And so Jesus gave them permission and the, the, the demons went into a, a herd of 2,000 swine and the scripture tells us that they rushed down the shore and off a cliff into the lake where they were drowned. And the man was put into his right mind, dressed and clothed. It says that the crowd saw him sitting at the feet of Jesus. And they were so stunned by this whole scene, by this whole, is that your dog, Rainy? <laughs> some people cell phones, you know, some people dogs. No. <laughs> That's awesome. It was sitting, um, so it was there as the, as the crowd saw, saw this man in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. The scripture tells us that they begged him to leave their area. They were afraid. You know, their economy even, even affected, I would say, you know, 2,000 uh, swine being destroyed. And they asked Jesus to leave. And as he was getting in the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, it says that that man who had been set free and who was in his right mind 
asked if he could come with Jesus. And Jesus told him to stay, to go and to return to his family and to share with them how God had had mercy on him and had spared him. And so Jesus leaves him behind. Now, I imagine in my mind as I read that story and think about that, that that, that, that man who had once been demon-possessed went on to have a very powerful witness for Jesus Christ in the area of the Decapolis. And so now, when Jesus returns there for the second time, what happens? There's no small crowd coming to see him. There's been a man set free from demon possession in his right mind, preaching about Jesus Christ in those cities. And when Jesus shows up, the crowd gathers, thousands, 4,000, we read here. And this crowd had been with Jesus for three days as he taught them. And similar uh, to the account in Mark chapter 6, with a compassionate heart, Jesus is not only sensitive to to the spiritual need of these people, but he also wants to meet their physical needs. And so he presents the dilemma to his disciples and he says, what do we do? What do we do? Now, I, I, I just as I read that story, I kind of imagine what Jesus might be expecting or hoping that his disciples would reply. Okay, well, we've seen this Jesus do this before. 5,000 people. This is a smaller crowd. This should be no problem. We'll just find a few loaves of bread and, you know, presto, bingo. He can feed the crowd and do his thing. I think Jesus was hoping that his disciples would remember his faithfulness in the past and they would use that as a motivating factor to trust him for the present need. See, it's important that we remember how God has been faithful to us in the past. And my mom was saying as we were just hanging out, she kept saying to me and my brother, you guys should be writing this down. You You should be journaling about these things. You should be... You need to remember what God is doing here. You need to remember what's happening here. See, it's important that we do that. Check check out verse 4. It says this. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's amazing to me that they had completely forgotten the other miracles. You know, sometimes... The disciples are just kind of all too easy targets for our criticism. You're like, guys, hello. You're with Jesus. You've already been down this road once before. Like, but you know, how often do we remember or fail to remember the mercy of the Lord in our own lives? How often are we so thick in the head and hard of heart that we fail to remember how Jesus Christ has worked in our past One of the things that I would say was tripping up the disciples was uh, their attitude in regards to the crowd. Because it wasn't a Hebrew crowd. It was a Gentile crowd. Check out out verse 4 again. I want to point something out to you. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here at a desolate place? Okay, they didn't like the crowd. That was part of their problem. You know, Jesus, we can imagine you doing, yes, we understand you doing a great work amongst the people of Israel, but these people, come on, we're above these people. How will you feed these men? You know, the scripture tells us that the message of the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. 
And I think that this story is an incredible story of God's provision and manna from heaven, not just for the Jewish person, for the Hebrew person, but for the Gentile. See, this is the second time that Jesus is going to perform this miracle of feeding a multitude with bread. And the significance is this, that Jesus Christ is none other than the eternal creator, the giver of life, uh, who called himself the bread of life and gave himself first to the 5,000, the Hebrew, the Jew, but then the bread of life made himself available to the 4,000, the Gentile, and the bread of life is made available to us. See, the first time that Jesus fed the multitude, he took those five loaves and those few fish from the crowd and he multiplied them and he fed them. But this time, Jesus asked his disciples to give up their own food and that he will multiply it. Check out verse 5 and 8, 5 through 8. It says this. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that this also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketfuls. A, a miraculous provision. Bread from heaven, I would call it. Manna from heaven. Jesus provided more than enough. Just like thousands of years earlier with the Israelites in the wilderness. You can gather more than enough. There's more than, those who want little can have little. Those who want much can have much. You know, the first time Jesus fed that crowd of, of 5,000, it tells us that there were 12 basketfuls left over, which is kind of cool. 12 is a significant number for Hebrew people. You know, there's 12 tribes. There's, there's 12 apostles, 12 disciples. It's, it speaks of uh, God's plan for the people of Israel, that there's wholeness and there's completeness and there's full provision in Jesus Christ. But in this time where he feeds this crowd of uh, Gentiles and there's seven basketfuls left over again, you know, it's seven is the number of perfection in the scripture. It's, it's a picture of God's perfect provision even for the Gentile people in Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in the scripture, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. There is full provision for the needs of mankind in myself. I am the bread of life. I provide perfectly for mankind and for those who come to me. There's no need for anything else. There's no need for anyone else. When Jesus provides, he provides more than enough. He provides in abundance. And when you experience that reality in Jesus Christ, it's very satisfying, as I know you guys know. It's very satisfying to be fed by the Lord. And it says these people ate and they were satisfied. He met their needs. He met their hunger. And they were filled. And Jesus Christ is still the same today. He is, he, he is the provision and the solution for every problem that we have. He really truly is. And what we need to do is just trust him. Hang on to him. Cling to him. Give him our all. Obey him. Follow after him. It says in verse 9 that there were about, and there were about 4,000 people 
And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. I think that's how you say it. Interesting. We're going to have this little interlude here in this story. Jesus crosses back over the lake to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, it's kind of interesting. I didn't notice this before in this story, but as I was checking it out this week, it says in the footnotes of your Bible that that area is Magadan or Magdala. Magdala. Does it remind you of a different character in the scriptures? Mary uh, Magdalene. In fact, when, we're, when we go to Israel, just give this plug for those guys who come to Israel. We're going to stay in Tiberias, which is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when we do the drive and we head up that western shore towards Capernaum and into the north, we're going to drive right past this community of Magdala. In fact, our guide told us last time that it was kind of a little stopping place for lonely travelers, if you get what I mean. Uh, And so I think it's very interesting that Jesus crosses the lake to this spot, and guess who he meets there? The Pharisees, those hypocrites. I guess they were hanging out in Magdala. Verse 11, check it out. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So nothing pure or noble about the intentions of these Pharisees, you know, hearing stories or even witnessing the multiplying of some bread and fish wasn't enough for these guys. They wanted to test Jesus. They were missing the whole point of what Jesus was trying to communicate to the crowds and to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles, that that it was God who provides manna from heaven, that God provided bread from heaven when they were when the Israelites were living their wilderness wanderings and Jesus providing bread from heaven to these two crowds in a similar fashion was him making that claim, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the provision for all mankind. And the Pharisees asked for something very interesting here. Look what they asked for. A sign from heaven. I guess the bread wasn't enough. What more did these Pharisees need to see? You know, as we look at the story of Jesus, we know clearly from the stories of Jesus in the gospel that there's nothing wrong with Jesus. He is God's provision fully and completely and perfectly. The problem was not with Jesus. The problem was not with the bread that God had provided from heaven. The problem was with the Pharisees and their stubborn refusal to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12 says, And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. No sign will be given to this generation. That word generation expresses this. It's negative. As Jesus says that he's, it's referencing a perverse generation in the original language. No sign will be given to this perverse generation. Which to me is interesting, you know, because contrary to the opinion of many, signs do not produce faith. Many people say, if I could, if I can see, I will believe. But that is not faith. Seeing to believe is not faith. The scripture tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and being certain of what we do not see. See, signs do not produce faith. Signs only produce a craving for more signs. They will never give birth to faith. 
Because faith does not come by sight, the scripture says. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Not by seeing miracles, but by studying the word of God is faith birthed in your heart. We need to be in the word every day. Every day, we need our manna from heaven so that we'll have faith in what God is doing. Lost my page. Verse 13. I should go to the Gospel of Mark, not John. <laughs> Verse 13 says, And he left them, got into the boat again, and went on to the other side. So, you know, this is a weird little interlude in the middle of this story. It's going right back, back to the Decapolis. Here we go. So he just takes this journey across the Sea of Galilee, has a confrontation with the Pharisees, gets in his boat, and leaves and goes back again. It's kind of interesting. And... You know, all Jesus got in this little area of Dalmanutha was resistance. I would say, why waste, it? why waste your time, Jesus? Why would you waste your time going across that lake to face that resistance? To meet with the Pharisees. But I would say, you know, that the Pharisees' test and the question sets us up for the next part of the story. It, 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 it ties what's about to happen together. You ever had a run-in with a Pharisee? You know, those types of Christians that are more concerned with the outside of the cup than what's going on with the inside of the cup. Pharisees who take broken windows and dress them and trim them up but don't bother to replace the glass that's clearly broken. You know, those sorts of things. You know, maybe over the years you've been part of a church or had run-ins with one that you might define as a Pharisee, a a hypocrite, a legalist. And what's important when you hit situations like that is not what that Pharisee says to you or, or how they offend you. What is important is how you respond to what you experience in that encounter. There are many who see the Pharisee and they say this, I don't want anything to do with Christ and I don't want anything to do with the church. There's many Christians who say, well, Okay, I love Jesus, but I'm cutting off my relationship with the church because I don't like the Pharisees. I'm going to distance myself from the body of Christ. But see, Jesus will lead you into confrontations and discussions with Pharisees to do something, to test you, to see what's in your own heart, to see how you will respond. Because this little interlude with the Pharisees was a chance for Jesus to do a couple things. Firstly, to speak judgment on the Pharisees on a perverse generation, but it was also for him, a chance for him to lead his disciples to the place where they themselves could look in the mirror and look at their own hearts. See, looking in the mirror is important in the Christian faith. Looking in the mirror lets you discover, you know, when it's time for a shave or, you know, trimming the nose hairs or plucking the eyebrows or whatever it is you got to do, okay? Putting the hair back in place. Looking in the mirror is important. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Philippians chapter 2, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us examine our ways and test them and return to the Lord. 
It's important that we take times to look in the heart and see where we're at. And an encounter with a Pharisee always provides you with that opportunity. This encounter with the Pharisee set the table for Jesus to try and help his disciples to see something about their own walks and their own lives. Look at verse 14. It says this. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. It's really interesting. You know, after just leaving the Decapolis, where there were seven basketfuls of bread, nobody remembered to bring any bread for the quick trip, the jaunt back and forth across the lake. Verse 15 says, And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Here it is, the look in the mirror that he's calling them to. Yeast, or leaven, we know is used in that fermentation process in dough when you're making bread. In Bible times, you know, a leaven was usually you retained a little piece and it just moved on from batch of bread to batch of bread, um, helping your dough to rise. I remember when we were newlyweds there, we, were in the, we got one of those chain things, you know. You ever got those? The ladies are all going, yeah, I know what he, And the guys are like, uh, what's he talking about? Um, it's okay, guys. I'll bring you along here. Uh, we got, somebody gave us this piece of dough and a rye recipe. And it was make two loaves of rye and then pass the yeast on to someone else. And they make, and it was like, where does the chain of, anyways, it was good bread. It was good bread. Now, leaven is used metaphorically in the Bible. Uh, speaking of influence that permeates. Whatever it touches, whatever it touches, leaven will permeate through it. And it's used as a symbol of good in the scripture. It's also used as a symbol of bad in the scripture. In this parable, well, it, there's one parable where Jesus talks about leaven as being a good thing. He talks about the kingdom of God. It's in Matthew chapter 13. And he says, the, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. It's talking about the, the spreading nature of the kingdom of God. It just it's naturally does it. The action of the leaven in the meal is hidden, but it's powerful. It's relentless. It's pervasive. It works itself through the dough. It's, it's a symbol of the way God's kingdom spreads. On the other hand, Jesus also used leaven in an evil sense to illustrate the fermentation or the moral and political corruption that can happen to us. So he says to his disciples, be careful. Be careful of the leaven. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Again, you know, leaven as this symbol of evil, at Passover season, we read in the Old Testament that the Israelites were instructed to remove all of the leaven from their homes. They were to inspect everywhere. All the corners, the cupboards, everything, remove the leaven. It, is not, it was not allowed to be present in their offerings. It wasn't allowed to be present for a season in their homes. And so, you know, here Jesus talks about the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees. He's speaking of the work of legalism and hypocrisy, I would say. They said, but they did not do. Hypocrites. They weighed heavy burdens upon people and they didn't use a finger to lift it. Legalists. 
They love spiritual power. They love spiritual authority within the, their culture and within their religion. They thought legalism could bring a kingdom of righteousness. But legalism is just about really ultimately about placing rules over people and trying to control their behavior in their religious practices. And legalism breeds this, it, it really breeds a culture of self-centeredness where you're always trusting in your own works before God rather than resting in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Legalism breeds a culture where you say, look at me, look what I can do. So Jesus says, you, you, gotta, you gotta watch out for that in your life. You need to look in the mirror and check your own heart. On the other hand, there's the yeast of Farad, which is, I would say, you know, the concept of establishing a kingdom and then politicizing it. Domineering, domineering over people with political power and with authority. The, the yeast of Herod is to think that you can bring about a kingdom of righteousness by enforcing political power on people. And you know, those tendencies can start small and innocently, but they can creep into our lives. Even when we got good intentions, they spread like yeast and corrupt the whole body. And so Jesus says, watch out for that. Verse 16 and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Okay, there they are, missing the boat again. <laughs> no pun intended. They're in a boat. How Sunshine Coast people hate missing the boat. <laughs> Amen. They think Jesus is talking about having no bread, and they take the concept, they take the metaphor of yeast, and, and they, you know, they... They demonstrate their inability to grasp a spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to teach them, a spiritual idea, because uh, they couldn't get past their own stomachs, essentially. My stomach gets in the way. Does yours get in the way of you receiving things from the Lord sometimes? You know, sometimes a season of fasting is a good thing, just to teach your body who's the boss. I don't serve you, stomach. I serve Jesus Christ. Be back in your place. And you, you discipline your body. That's what fasting is. A choice to put spiritual matters before the stomach. It's a good practice. Verse 17 says, And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you do not see? Do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? See, the disciples' problem, and often my problem, Often our problem is, is that our hearts are hard to the things of God. We, we fail to see, we fail to hear, we fail to comprehend and understand. We fail to remember what God has done. Eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. And Jesus makes it clear that there is a direct correlation between the hardening of your heart and the failure of your memory. Kind of interesting when it comes to spiritual matters. 
When does the heart become hardened towards the Lord and towards Jesus Christ? When is the fire of faith quenched? When I forget the bread that God provides for me every day. This is a simple thing. When I forget the bread, the spiritual food that God is giving me to sustain me every day, the heart just goes hard to the things of God. See, the disciples, I would say, essentially had the same problem as the Pharisees. Unbelief. Beware of unbelief. It's dangerous to your health. It's dangerous to your relationship with Jesus. And unbelief led the Pharisees to reject Jesus Christ outright. The disciples, they weren't rejecting Jesus outright, but they were slow to believe because of the hardness of their hearts, because of the failure of their memory. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? He provided more than enough. Then they got into the boat. When you go back in Mark and you read that story, I love that story. That's the story of Jesus walking on the water. It kind of struck me as I was thinking about this. Because in Exodus, it says that the dew came and then the manna came on the dew. And I just thought, that's a neat picture. Jesus, the bread of life, walking on the Sea of Galilee. The bread on the water. Or there's the account in Mark chapter 4. Well, actually, in that story, we know that when Jesus got into the boat, what happened? The storm subsided. And it says immediately they were at their destination. After being fearful in that storm and seeing Jesus walking on the water thinking that he's a ghost. Mark chapter 4 tells another story of Jesus in the boat with the disciples and you know that one him sleeping in the midst of the storm and they're freaking out thinking that they're going to die, thinking that their lives are in danger and not realizing that in the face of the storm Jesus Christ was right in the boat with them. There was no safer place for them than in that storm because there Christ was present with them. And Jesus stood up and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down. And the scripture tells us it was completely calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? And then their fear changed. They weren't afraid of the storm anymore. They were afraid of Jesus who was in the boat with them. They said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey this man. And in Mark chapter 8, I, I just wonder, had they forgotten the terror that filled their, their hearts in that story? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? He multiplies bread and feeds thousands. Who is this? He walks on the water. See, Jesus is able to provide. He's faithful to provide. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. Beware the danger of unbelief because it will spread like yeast in your life. And unbelief is the earmark of a Pharisee. Where you start to walk in unbelief, there you will start to walk in hypocrisy. Unbelief is the identifying mark of a wicked and perverse generation to which Jesus said no sign will be given. I want to tell you about the nature of Jesus. See, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus will provide. When you come to Jesus, you will eat and you will be satisfied. Amen? Have faith in Jesus. 
And faith is strengthened and our hearts are softened as we softened as we remember how Jesus provides our daily bread, both physically and spiritually. When Jesus sat around the table sharing the last supper with his disciples, he said to them, do this in remembrance of me. This morning, actually, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. See, the Lord's Supper is one of the ways that we remember the greatest of provisions that Jesus Christ ever made for us, the cross. The giving of his own life on the cross where he died for our sin. We remember and something happens. Our hearts are softened towards the things of God. See, we have this tendency just to forget. It's the nature of our humanity. To forget God's provision. He meets the need and then the next time we face some problem, panic. Ah! Where are you, God? Discouragement or complaints or we allow fear to take a foothold. But as long as we are with Jesus, as long as we know that he is in the boat, we can be sure that he will provide. And so this morning, I just want to leave you with just a few thoughts about the provision of God. Don't seek signs, but live by faith in the word of God. Trust Jesus Christ to meet your needs. And take time to search your heart and to look out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. The picture of Jesus as the bread of life in the Gospels is awesome. And I love it from this chapter, John chapter 6. Read a few verses for you. I'm actually going to invite the worship team to come. You guys can come up here now. Verse 26 of John chapter 6 says this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see you, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread, who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then in verse 47, Jesus continues. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, 
he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh.